Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Well, it sounds to me like maybe you're having trouble letting movie podcasts get close to you. Try to relax and welcome to Be Real. Guys, I am one of your hosts, Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. We're gathered here again on Super Bowl Sunday, no less. Um, right. And by the time you're hearing this, the uh, Broncos have lost a thousand to nothing. <laughs> I was just going to say, so this is our opportunity to make like crazy bold predictions that people hear in a week and they know how really idiotic we are. I'm going with my thousand point spread. I'm I'm going for Cam. I, uh, I'm no fan of the sheriff. He needs to. Uh, someone needs to take those guns off of him. So, yeah, um, I had this fascinating experience with one of my colleagues at work this week uh whose first high school boyfriend was one um cupper manning if you will cooper the no it's pronounced cupper no it is not in fact it is the the oldest the eldest manning brother um and like apparently peyton eli and archie uh know her quite well really i guess she would know how it's pronounced huh do you want to lead us in and talk about the genre? I would love to do that. Okay. Let me take a big old swig of Miller Lite in a can. You just told, no, you sorry. told me it was Heineken. Heineken Lite, okay. Heineken Lite in the same can as one would get a uh, Red Bull. Yeah, the uh, mistakes on today's episode are brought to you by Super Bowl Sunday, courtesy of Heineken and Tecate. So let's get into it. On this week's edition of Be Real Guys, an episode I'm dubbing The Guys Must Be Crazy, we will be examining the origins and the infrastructure in place to deal with mental illness. In these films, we are thrust into the science and the emotion behind what it takes to open up to another human being, as flawed if not more so than the patient on the literal or metaphorical couch, to find mental health. And while there are great examples of this genre, we've picked A Dangerous Method, Girl Interrupted, and analyzed this. A historical drama about the origins of a talking cure, a based on a memoir drama about psychological commitment, and a comedy about a gangster with panic attacks. And as Chance and I will both hopefully agree, these portrayals of psychiatric care are, objectively speaking, not terribly favorable in their views of what psychology can do. And their success or shortcomings as films relies heavily on whether or not the audience can both sympathize with the patient at the center of these films and of the constructs by which we consider someone sane or insane. When I view a film about psychology, I'm forced, as a viewer, to turn the camera on myself and question what I think of my own mental health. As a middle-class neurotic Jew from the Northeast, it's been my privilege to spend most of my adolescence and adulthood under the care of numerous psychiatrists and psychologists, most of whom are undoubtedly still shaking their heads at the wild delusions that have dictated my actions throughout (laughs) my life and the way in which I interact with the world. However, it grants me an entry point into a practice that has given me great solace, albeit not in the realm of sexually charged humiliation, 1960s female ennui, or organized crime. 
but my perception of these films is deeply personal, and my viewings follow suit as I pursue my own mental health within the same aforementioned constructs. And to give us the reverse side of my patient experience, Chance has boldly enlisted the help of his girlfriend, who has arguably done enough in keeping him sane as he deals with my shenanigans <laughs> on a bi-weekly basis, to illuminate her own experience as an analyst in training and how that colors her perception of these films. To rate these films, I looked at each one as their own case study into mental health, answering the questions, does this film pass the smell test on an ethical level? Does the patient, and thus the film, find mental health in the end? And does this film give us a greater understanding of our own mental health through the patient's own process? Well, welcome to the podcast. A master's student in mental health counseling via the fine Wake Forest University, a true demon deacon, uh, and someone who actually sees patients uh, here in Portland at a location we shan't disclose, and the person with whom I share this modest apartment. Sarah Barrett, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's very convenient. <laughs> yes, it is. What a wonderful, wonderful dinner you made earlier. This bottle of uh, white wine. White wine. Insisted be $8, not 6 <laughs> So much common ground. You ready to talk about these three movies? That I am. You watched all of them with me. I did. I stayed awake for all three. Yes. You did a lot of knitting, mm -hmm. which is a great new project, but that also keeps you awake during movies. It does. It's very handy. So yeah, you, you put in six hours of work for this. I did. For this. I didn't get paid. No. No. Nobody gets paid. I'll buy the next $8 bottle of wine, though. That sounds fair. If you like. Um Oh, can I ask you a question off the top that doesn't specifically relate to any of the three movies? Yes. Do you have a favorite movie or television therapist, counselor, psychiatrist? Of course, it's Dr. Fraser Crane. Oh, my gosh. I really should have known that. <laughs> of course. He makes great jokes about Freud. So if you listened to last week's installment about submarine movies, you know how tight some movie genres can be? There's such a finite number of things that can happen to several dozen people on an underwater boat. But this week, as we discuss three movies about psychiatric professionals and their patients, the topic could scarcely be broader. Mental health issues are something that accompany us every day on a sliding scale, treated and untreated, fixable and not in the body of everyone in the world. Mob bosses, wayward young hippies, the very inventors of modern psychotherapy, they could probably all benefit in their phobias, triggers, and horrible lapses in judgment from a trained listening ear. And you'll find those professionals here in these three movies mocked, artistically explored, and heavily sensationalized. In rating today's three movies, I'll be considering the varied cultural backdrops behind our patients and doctors and how or whether it influences what we see on screen. Do the movies let us look clearly or at least thoughtfully at human minds? And how do these stories' understanding of them impact the portrayal of sickness? And then how do the inherently close but dicey relationships between the treater and the treated ebb and flow? 
His movies can't just show us the headspace with which these characters wake up on an average day. Rather, they are fundamentally about how equipped people are or will become to interact with others. Now, please, have a seat. I'm hoping that rambling on about movies with your friend each week is what they meant by The Talking Cure. Well, why don't we start with the uh, origins of The Talking Cure um, with The Dangerous Method. Okay. We are talking about the 2011 David Cronenberg movie based on a play by Christopher Hampton about the birth of psychoanalysis, basically, and the friendship and falling out between Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud around the turn of the 20th century and how Jung's relationship professionally, personally, and sexually with uh, a patient-turned-psychiatrist herself, Sabina Spielrein, uh, impacted, made, and broke the whole deal. So... Let's go from there. And if that sounds like a boring setup for a film, you're damn right it is. We're going to argue about this, you know. Are we? Yes, we are. All right, let me start out by saying this is like one of my least favorite like kinds of movies where there isn't a specific timeline for it. It just kind of jumps from scene to scene and like years pass like between transitions. And I think that's already like a rough place to start. I mean, yes, it has to be like the conceit for a biopic, but as we've saw, like as we saw in 2015, you can do something like a Steve Jobs where it doesn't necessarily have to do that. It doesn't have to follow that construct. And for a movie about like a talking cure, there certainly is a lot of talking, but there's not a lot of like curing or like scenes thereof. It's like these quick little scenes of like kind of wild stuff happening and like pontificating, you know, while Viggo Mortensen lights up his 25th cigar. And I don't know, but tell me what you liked about this movie. Well, I think you're, I think you're right to point out that the area of biopic is an apt place to start. The thing that I think is so cool about it is that I think a lot of times when people choose to make a historical movie, whether they do a traditional cradle to grave thing or like Aaron Sorkin's Steve Jobs that you mentioned that we reviewed uh, last year, I think people sometimes fail to ascertain whether there is actual human drama in those people's lives. They look for moments of racism or war or crime, but so many of those movies, even though those big historical tides are coming to bear, lack kind of pivotal human tensions when you're trying to write a movie about people and that's why i think the i think you can call it a love triangle even if some of it is professional or mentor mentee love happening uh is so interesting in this movie we should say quickly that fassbender plays uh carl jung and you mentioned a second ago vigo mortensen plays freud keir knightley is sabina spielrein um this movie does start in a crazy way though literally yeah yes Kira Knightley with her posture and her attempted at a Russian accent and her insane underbite but what you don't what I did not realize and what kind of happens to you as you watch is you realize that maniacal laughter and screaming are not the most interesting parts 
of what it looks like when uh, a person is struggling with with the crazy Freudian thing she was struggling with. Um, and as she sort of comes to center, she becomes a really interesting character and in some ways like kind of the protagonist of the movie. So let me toss to my conversation with Sarah, my Sarah Barrett, my roommate and girlfriend and person who I spend a lot of time with. I wonder what Freud would say about the order of those things. <laughs> but yeah, let's hear her talk about like the place of psychoanalysis in, in what people are doing a uh, hundred and twenty years later. And how is your little Russian patient? There was the most dramatic improvement. Is she a virgin? Oh, certainly. If you ever want to take the initiative, I live in that building there. The very first class I took was a theories class, and we started with Freud's theory um, of psychoanalysis. But it's always been with the caveat that none of his work was empirically backed. (laughs) And much of it, like, can't necessarily be proven. He still looms really large, though. Absolutely. And I mean, like, he's, I still think he's seen as, he's almost more of a cultural figure in the field. Um, and just, like, the idea of, you know, like, this talking couch where this person just comes into a room and just lies down and talks kind of to the, you know, to whoever is listening. Like, that's an idea that is still really rooted in the image of Freud doing that. Um, And I mean, he was the one to come up with the talking cure ultimately. And that is like the very root of therapy. So I think he was a very intuitive person. And most of those ideas of his are born from some kind of inherent intuition about like how human beings work, but he didn't, he wasn't like, a researcher and he wasn't someone who like took the time to prove his theories so last thing about this movie which is something that you brought up at the end it's rather lurid <laughs> sex with patients and vice versa why is that a thing don't do it uh it's a don't do don't it don't do it um if anyone's out there is listening um but no it's interesting because Time and again, the number one ethics complaint that comes to the board each year in every state is sexually inappropriate complaints against a therapist getting involved sexually with their patient. Really? Yeah, that's still the number one, like, broken, statistically, yeah, broken ethical code. Um, We spend, I've spent a significant amount of time learning about it in my ethics class um, and a couple of my other, like, general counseling classes Um, and I think a lot of times what happens is you are sharing like a really intimate space with clients and they're sharing things um, with you that just feel super personal and if you yourself like aren't as aware as you should be um, or like maybe have some other issues going on it's really really easy to fall into that like it's like a quicksand basically so it still happens all the time People are baffled as to why it continues to happen, but it's like the number one thing that you really don't ever want to do. Never repress anything. I want you to punish me. See, I thought that, I mean, I think Fassbender, I mean, like is one of the finest actors working today. And, uh, 
you know, Viggo Mortensen is a David Cronenberg regular. Um, yeah, I don't know that he was at this point. Yeah, I don't know that he was the best Sigmund Freud out there, but I don't think he did a bad job. My real issue is with Kira Knightley. Um, like I thought she, I mean, it starts on, on like a weird tone. I mean, that's the, that's the product of the screenplay. Um, but it starts, yes, with her like, like warped body and doing that sort of like Michael Phelpsian, like underbite and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and like kind of coming in and out of this Russian accent. I was surprised you were not more perturbed because you were so upset about Kate Winslet's in and out of her Russian accent. But I felt like in moments of calm, Kira Knightley can do a Russian accent. But when she gets excited, she's just like, nah, fuck it. I'm Kira Knightley and I'm from the UK. Oh, I didn't get that, but whatever. That's how I felt. I thought, if anything, she was really overdoing it. It was like a mollusk on my back or something like that. The other thing, too, is that the constraints of the film in that most of um, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung's relationship is through letters. Yeah. So I had trouble really, like, feeling much about the arc and then the downfall of their relationship. And I was sort of scratching my head by what was supposedly the climax of the film as to, like, why they didn't like each other. I mean, it seemed like fundamentally they were on the same page about their theories and stuff. And then they kind of disagreed one time. And then he's like, you know what? We're done. What wasn't it? Didn't you? I feel like the betrayal of Jung carrying on an extended sexual relationship with Spielrein was what sunk it. See, I thought it was sort of interesting because it felt for me because the area of psychology is so new at the, in the late 18th or late 19th, early 20th century when this movie is said, psychology is not like a mainstream thing. And, but the other sort of social thing that exists is the idea that, you know, a husband can have a mistress and it's not that big of a deal. So for me, it didn't feel like the stakes were very high for them actually having this love affair. Well, it's not a it, big deal among 50 something men. It's a like, I don't think. Right. But those are the people who sort of dictate it. what is right and wrong at this time. Yeah. But like personally, I think Jung would have been very upset if his wife would have found out. Oh, see, I was under the impression that like. Maybe she didn't know it was specifically her, but she kind of got the sense that, like, when he leaves the country, because he's like, clinic is in a different country. Yeah. That, you know, you know, sort of a don't ask, don't tell policy with marriages of the early 20th century. Hmm. The thing, interesting thing about Carl Jung and Fassbender's performance is he's such a ball of clay. He's so mm-hmm. influenced by everyone around him, whether it's Sabina or Freud or Vincent Cassell's very strange, like, 15 His 30-second thing where he's just like, I don't think monogamy is realistic. And then Jung's like, yeah, it's not realistic. <laughs> Let me sleep with my patient. <laughs> this character from Trainwreck shows up. Right. Um, I got to say, I think the most interesting thing about this movie and so many of the things that you're criticizing, I just find so fascinating because it's such a tight 90 minute movie where very little is wasted. And I think that despite the vast amount of talking, I think Cronenberg is keenly aware of how much talking there is because I think some of the funniest parts of the movie are where someone comes off an insane uh, scientific or theoretical speech and the person in the room with them is kind of like, huh. But I think in its form, 
the most interesting thing about this movie is that it's essentially these people living in a Victorian time having these rather mannered conversations about these completely contextually inappropriate things. And I think Cronenberg right. finds that very funny, too. Well, he's clearly having fun, like the scene where uh, Jung comes to like the uh, Freud family dinner, yes. and they're like talking about something while he's like serving himself like way too much food. Yeah, he's taking and all their it, like, vegetables. Right, and then it turns out that they're talking about like you know the sexuality, like in pretty stark terms, and then the camera sort of flips to the other side and shows that there's like a bunch of kids sitting at this table just staring at him. <laughs> So I'll get that. Th- I give you that there there were moments of levity in there, but like I don't know. I feel like the scenes of them like coming up with their theories just to be a little on the nose. They're on the nose, and yet I feel like I don't necessarily agree with the criticism that inventing, wanting to see them invent the proper version of the talking cure is really a fair criticism because I think it's really interesting to watch these people who are supposed to be founding the basis of what now is a very healthy principle in a super unhealthy way to everyone around them. It's like people experimenting like with what's supposed to make you better. And it's kind of for these 20 years or whatever, like killing all of them. Right. I don't know, man. I feel like we've talked about in just like the narrative function of like letters and reading on screen. Like, I think that's like our big issue with Howell was the idea that like Uh. watching somebody read is not that interesting. And I just feel like the last third of the movie relied so heavily on these letters and not scenes. So it was just sort of these like wide shots of, you know, Vienna and Geneva. Oh, they were so beautiful. Like, oh, for God's sake. This movie was such a dangerous method apologist. I guess, unlike you, Chance, I am not young at heart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. You hold on to that. How long do you hold on to that one for? Since I heard it on Frasier, however many <laughs> years ago. I guess let's move toward a rating, because I think we've made our, our feelings pretty clear. Um, I can go first. I really, I think that this movie is good, good. No one saw this movie, by the way, but it's amazing to me that Cronenberg would be interested. I think it is a really fascinating 90 minutes with three A-list actors who have all either are stars or have flirted with stardom and they have this like crazy nugget of a biopic in their in their filmographies and I think it's super interesting. Maybe you won't like it like Noah, but I think if you're like tuned way in, you'll find it pretty insane. Um, I mean, you've sold me a little bit, so I'm going to give it like a good bad. Okay. That's, that's um, good. This movie certainly does not pass the smell test on an ethical level. Um, I don't know. I guess, I mean, Kira Knightley is like, quote unquote, better by the end of the movie when she gets killed by the Nazis. Um, that doesn't happen in the movie. Right. But like, that's kind of like a dark sort of epilogue to end it on i think the epilogue is amazing like world war one is just like a personal crisis that's coming i love the framing god you're just enamored with this movie it's really good and people should seek it out okay all right um well let's let's press forward to girl interrupted hey this is the 1999 movie directed by james mangold based on the Memoir from 93 by Susanna Kaysen, who's the protagonist in the movie, played by Winona Ryder. Noah, do you want to quickly synopsize? 
Yeah, so um, Winona Ryder, for a variety of reasons, mainly just sort of her ennui and her, like, maybe suicide attempt uh, is sort of asked nicely if she wouldn't check herself in uh, for a while to um, this uh, inpatient mental facility called Claymore uh, in a suburb of Boston. And in there, a sort of uh, ladies version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, slash, um, you know, one of these uh, New England prep school movies sort of unfolds. Um, with Angelina Jolie as like the very troubled, but like, well, she's the um, the Jack Nicholson character basically, and uh, you know all the other characters that you have Elizabeth Moss from Mad Men who plays this girl who's been who burned herself uh, for a reason you find out later, um, and other sort of familiar faces. Whoopi Goldberg is one of the. Uh, she's sort of the head doctor in charge. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Tambor is the head psychologist. Um, Brittany Murphy. Uh, Vanessa Red... Brittany Murphy, God rest her soul, uh, is one of the patients. Vanessa Redgrave is like the the chair of the something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's sort of... It's, it's a very sort of picaresque story of the two years that this woman spent in... Uh, this residency where she could not leave uh, until they told her she could and the friends she made and the experiences she had and ultimately, you know, whether or not she comes to terms with her her diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. I guess I'm puzzled as to why it is I have to be in a mental institution. Call me a cab. Okay, you're a cab. (laughs) You chased a bottle of aspirin with a bottle of vodka. I had a headache. Were you kind of troubled by this movie? I was. Why don't we just get into why you were troubled by it? Well, I didn't like I didn't like how they portrayed her her borderline personality disorder. Isn't it fair to say, and I'll probably make this point when I talk to Noah too, that the movie's sort of like final end note of like, turns out I was just a normal girl, you know, with all these crazies. <laughs> yeah. But all the crazies taught me something. Right. Is like, I don't know, lame. It's totally lame. Yeah. All of the above. Um, and I, you know, this was a movie that came out 1999. 1999. Yeah. I would say there's still a lot of stigma around mental health, but like definitely less so now. And so to think about this movie coming out, then like, I feel like it just enhances the idea of like people with mental illness are like batshit crazy, um, which isn't the case, but this movie didn't do a good job of like, supporting that so you didn't think the character of torch was <laughs> oh elizabeth moss okay well i love torch because i love elizabeth Peggy moss. And Kitty were uh, got a real touchstone <laughs> yeah movie. they really were <laughs> i think this was maybe one of the first movies well i think fatal attraction she glenn closest character is diagnosed with borderline um, oh that's in that movie mm-hmm. no i'm sure there's like a medicine cabinet scene in that movie yeah before so, all the attempted stabbing. Right. So I don't know. Uh, Borderline has like a really interesting kind of like cultural fiction around it. And it's always just portrayed by women, which it does occur more often. What are the but, hallmarks of Borderline, by the way? Um, so instability in relationships. Uh, so one minute someone with Borderline might, they might just really love the person they're with, might love their friends. And then like that can turn really quickly. Um, and usually it's because they have 
irrational fears that like they're gonna lose this person so they just decide to lose them themselves essentially so they really struggle with things like hanging up the phone can you tell our audience a little bit about the residential treatment environment and how quickly things change there or don't change um you know i thought the movie did i thought it did an okay job it's kind of the most fun part it was and i think that personally i think that residential treatment is kind of a wild ride and you either are kind of meant for it or you're not do you think i'm meant for it I'm saying like, do you like think you I, want to you go into could, residential no, 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 treatment. No, no. Do you think I'm cut out for it? No, I think you could handle it. You do? Yeah, I do. Would I be Torch? You'd probably be Torch, but I don't. I think Elizabeth Moss might still be cuter than you. Sorry. Shit. <laughs> uh, no, um, residential facilities, especially with, I don't. I can't speak from like an adult perspective, but speaking from an adolescent perspective, which fits pretty well for this movie. In, um, sure. Adolescents in general are really high drama and there's always kind of a new fire to put out. So when you add that people are struggling with mental illness um, and maybe some addictions, like it makes for kind of a crazy work environment um, and things can change on a dime because people are very clever and they can figure out how to sneak things into residential care, how to sneak things to the boys door, you know, it changes all the time. Um, I think that part was I thought that was pretty accurate. And I do think that I I would say that residential communities, because they are always changing, some people could go into residential and have like a great experience and like make a bunch of friends. Um, but for other people that might not be the case, depending on who all is in the community and what's going on. Um, but I do think it's possible for some kids to build some really strong friendships through residential treatment. Uncertainty about goals and a generally pessimistic attitude are often observed. Oh, that's me. That's everybody. I mean, I think what saves this movie um, is the performances. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the directing of it is certainly um, tone deaf for the most part, I would say. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of like this sprawling, like John Irving novel of a movie. Yep. And it has these episodes that you like and other ones that you don't, but they move past them quickly enough that you kind of forget them. And, you know, you sort of land with that Shawshank Redemption arms up in the air moment by the end. There you go. So. Mangold is not a director who should be making, like, intense creative or aesthetic decisions about your movie and so he just kind of doesn't make them um, yeah he's, it's like oh we need a, a sort of a interesting transition shot find me the closest window if you yeah i love you said john irving i have written down there are some kind of odd cider house rules moments to show the time passing right and then at the end well, that's like the you go keep going and then at the end he it made me so upset that he felt he had to direct a thriller at the end of the movie. Um, that really, yeah. uh, this movie just could have been a lot better if someone had had st- stronger vision, I think. Yeah. I mean, well, that was sort of thing at the end. They were sort of, un- it felt to me the production team was sort of uncertain what the movie was ultimately about. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have like that thriller sort of sequence, 
Then you have a voiceover that's so maudlin that they cut it with other voiceovers yeah. just so you like, you just pick out like key phrases like, oh, a secret that I had to swallow. And then she says something else. And, and then the, it's just so, in their, mo- yeah. in their moment of peak tension, Winona, and I won't spoil it, but Ryder is saying things back to Angelina Jolie, who's like put her in this crazy corner. It's the climax of the movie. She's saying things that would make more sense if they were in a voiceover it just, it's it's kind of a mess that way. You're already dead, Chance. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Jolie really quick. She won the Oscar for this, and she sure did. The last scene, notwithstanding, though, I kind of suspect that the last scene is why the Academy liked it, um, which bothers me, but whatever. Um, this is a really cool role to see her do because it's just not anything she did ever again because she she strikes me and let me know if you disagree there's always this seriousness and this pridefulness to Jolie when she's on screen and sometimes I think she mistakes dignity for or I sometimes I think her sense of dignity stops her from doing interesting roles like her characters don't have any personality but in this movie because she, in part because she's portraying a sociopath, she has this ability for like pinpointing people and pushing her buttons, as she says, and she kind of has a better eye and ear for writing than than our main character, Susanna, who's actually trying to be a writer. And it's just a really, it's cool to see her do this, and instead she gave up these roles to Charlize Theron for the next like 15 years. I don't know that it ever decides like what the character of the place is because presumably it's like this much larger facility with like boys and like sexual deviance too was kind of the sense that I got. Yet we really only see South Bell, which is the, uh, the women's wing, even though it seems these women can, if they really want to move about freely on the campus. Absolutely. So I just thought it was interesting that you really never get a sense of outside this one hallway, yet it's supposed to be much bigger, but then you don't really know. I don't know. But then they go to town, too, to get ice cream in that one scene. It just seems like it doesn't know what the character of the setting is. That's a good point. And I think when you talk about the character of the setting, that's automatically going to influence who you meet and how you meet them. And I think one of the best parts of the movie, the part where I turned to Sarah, who I was watching with and said, I like it is it has for the, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes in, it has this cool, like league of their own moment with like troubled young indie actresses. I could have sworn that Jennifer Jason Lee was probably going to show up. That would have been the uh-huh. whole thing. Um, yeah. But the, the payoff for the environment and the ensemble kind of isn't there nor is the payoff for the fact that they are all young women you have you have a a cool moment when she's in the cab when you know it's the 60 you know it's the late 60s um and the cab driver's like well if you're crazy and you're seeing visions they ought to lock john lennon up and winona Ryder says well i'm not john lennon and that's like a good quote that works on a couple levels Mm -hmm. about both her own artistic ambitions but also that she does not have the status and privilege of a man but then the movie just kind of goes to it doesn't use the 60s well it's just all these people who like jared leto yelling like what's normal like they're the crazy ones out there like that's just i'm going to nam yeah. my number got picked <laughs> or then like the the kennedy poster on the lawn and everything like that 
it just I tell, it ends up yeah. becoming a movie where she says like I met all these crazy gals and it turns out I wasn't the crazy one and like that's that's bad. I hope to see my friend again. Yeah. I sh- hope to shake his hand. I think you're right on with those sort of 90s uh, emotional sagas. The movie in the first 20 minutes has an incredible visual voice. Mm-hmm. When it like cut, like doors will open and it'll be like a different time That's and a, a different scene. And it just gives up on it the moment that this woman goes into this place. Yep. That, like, she's still the same troubled girl that I don't understand, like, why there aren't more, like, flashbacks and forwards that work so well, like, in establishing, like, this uneasiness that comes with, you know, being in her point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, like, when the dog's barking when she's talking to the therapist and you're not sure, like, is the dog in the room or is that just something she's hearing? I just thought that was such an interesting choice that was completely abandoned. Let's get to ratings um, by way of ducking back to what you talked about before. I think you're spot on with uh, the movie abandoning ship on its only cool visual decisions. But they both those things you talked about relate to the fact that it didn't end up convincing me that it was particularly observant of Winona's character or that it knew her very very well and and that's the thing like this is a movie from 1999 like you've got you've had 30 years to make a comment on 60s mental health and for some reason it just treats it like it was made in 1967 and it i I could never pass judgment on whether or not the institution messed up or not ultimately the or like the takeaway at least from the movie i don't know if this is also the memoir but the takeaway is play by the rules and we'll let you interact with society. That's true. And so I, but I don't know. So that's sort of my question of like the ethics of this movie. Like I thought and before, I don't want to skip over him too, but I thought, I thought Jeffrey Tambor was pretty brilliant. Someone should have turned uh, up his mic a little bit though. Right. But I like that. That's that just like the, the look he makes when he's like, of course, standing in the, the goddamn rain, but the face he makes um, when one of the patients uh, passes away and he's standing in the rain looking at the ambulance. Uh, I thought that was a really, I think he's like very underutilized, but what he does do, I think he does very well in this film. And that's, and like the, the heart of gold whoopee there. And she's, I don't know. She's good. In the, she's good in this movie, despite the fact that, her role as a soulful, soulful black woman kind of becomes the thing you don't want it to become, but she's, she's down for that. Right. I mean, she's red from Shawshank Redemption. Correct. Um, I didn't realize how similar this movie was to Shawshank Redemption. Uh, nor did I, you're making great points about it though. And not intending to. Um, so I think on like a nineties ethical level, it, it, it'll get a pass. <laughs> <laughs> but like a, a 2016 read on this movie is like somewhat questionable. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing is like, I don't know that Winona Ryder finds mental health in the end, but then the question is, was she ever insane to begin with? Correct. And I think the, the film sort of says no, Yeah. that she was just bored and lazy and like maybe a little depressed, but it seems like that was sort of the product of these adults ultimately taking advantage of her. So. I think that's a nice reading. I think that's or a kind reading on your part. I think you're you're being generous when you pick that one because right. I think it le- could have let you pick from some other stupid ones. Right. But ultimately, if it if that's like what her mental health is, ultimately, then I don't think it gives us the audience a um, 
a greater understanding of our own mental health. Right. And that's one of the, one of the factors that I was sort of reviewing uh, with. So for me, I'm going to have to say bad, good, bad, good. Yeah. I'll agree with you. I was, I intended to be meaner. I intended to say bad, bad, but no, you're right. Like you, you have to give some love for the fact that when you come out of that movie, you have to say that Jolie, Winona, Whoopi, Tambor, Brittany, that there were some, that people, those people cared about the movie and they cared about their performances. And that produces something, something, like you said, good to watch on television. So yeah, I'll say bad, good too. Nice. I was going to say bad, bad though. Well, I was going to say bad, bad for the other ones. So, hey, but that's in, why we do this podcast. The, you know, I mean, and in this idea of, of, of mental health and compromise and all the good stuff, mm. uh, I'm, I'm willing to go out on limbs with you today that I maybe otherwise wouldn't. And in the future, it will not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, let's talk about Analyze This, another 1999 movie. So, Chance, do you want to do the uh, the rundown of the plot? Yeah, I can give it a go. Uh, 1999, like we said, there was a sequel three years later. Analyze that. Both of them were directed by Harold Ramis. Um, the synopsis is is super simple. I don't know how much... I mean, it's a, it's a real premise movie. What if a mob boss who can never show his sensitivities talk to a man felt the need to talk to a man who deals only in sensitivities for a profession. Robert De Niro plays Paul Vitti, a New York mafia head honcho in one of the... A surprisingly ubiquitous mafioso. <laughs> yes, indeed. Not Paul Vitti. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's having panic attacks after his friend is killed and uh, he needs to talk to someone. So he talks to... Dr. Sobel, played by uh, Billy Crystal, who, I don't know, he's, he's, he's doing Billy Crystal here, but kind of subdued for the first part, and uh, essentially will not leave him alone. Uh, this is a right. man who is not used to waiting in line, not used to scheduling appointments, not used to talking about his feelings, and all the comedy comes out of that. Yeah, so it's basically uh, his character from Goodfellas uh, meets up with uh, Harry from When Harry Met Sally. But I think the thing with this movie is you kind of need to cleanse your mental palate a little bit to not be sort of exhausted by it. Because one, you I, I think you have to realize that in 99, this is one of the first examples, might be the first example of Robert De Niro no longer like taking himself very seriously and I mean, yeah. we've seen him do that and we've seen him either do mob spoofs or just do movies where he has the resonances of intimidating a weaker, less masculine man in a comedy for the next 15 years. And we know that it's super boring. But what I'm saying is if you can put that out of your mind and realize that this is De Niro and he looks like it too, who just made Heat and Jackie Brown and Casino, you can think about enjoying the fact that no one had seen him do self parody before. Right. Yeah. This movie is, um, on one hand, I'll, I'll go out on a limb with you. And this movie is like such an interesting artifact, um, for a variety of reasons. Like one, yes, De Niro, like suddenly playing against type. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But I also think it's just so funny in like our like the sensibilities of the people who saw this movie and then clamored for a sequel. <laughs> this movie made like $175 million. It's just so funny that like, I mean, this is 99. This is a pre-9-11 New York yes. where like the biggest like things that people are worried about Paul is Vitti. like, is yes, is sort of like a 70s like <laughs> mobster who like who, like and that yeah that's like the biggest thing people worry about is that like a mobster is going to come to their wedding meet Paul Vitti I know feel great never felt better a mob boss with a problem <laughs> yeah I got stress <laughs> funniest part of watching this with you is at one point you turned to me and said I'm really stressed out on behalf of Billy Crystal Robert De Niro is a nightmare patient because of his <laughs> lack of respect for boundaries. Mm -hmm. Work-life balance uh, for a therapist is extra difficult to maintain, but extra important that you do maintain it. Um, and like, like if you want to get married in Miami and not have a mob boss right. show up, you should be able. To you do should be that. able to do that. Um, clients really shouldn't ever know anything about your personal life, as a good rule of thumb. And the idea that like. Oh my god that like a client would seek me out in the middle of the night or like at a wedding is just really stressful for me to think about um, and you have to find the like balance between being able to serve people when they're in crisis and really need someone and also protecting yourself professionally and personally so i don't think billy crystal did a good job of that billy crystal seems to have this fantasy as he's seeing clients that like if he could only just like yell at them and tell them what he really thought um, or that a moment of blunt honesty from him will do more than the normal what's per, what's portrayed as his normal psychobabble. Yeah, for type sure. Stuff. And I'm curious. Do you think does anything good ever come of that a moment where a therapist is like all right you know what i'll just like straight up freelance with this person i'll go <laughs> off book and tell them what i think they might need to hear i don't think that works in real life because the conception i think the misconception about therapy is that you come to therapy and the therapist like is full of wise things and tells you what you should do with your life but the reality is is that the therapists like we're just trained to repeat what you already know back to you in a way that like helps you understand it better and it's like a very subtle technique but I don't like I don't have the right to really tell my clients what I think I'm just helping them understand what they think if that makes sense so even if I would feel like this is not working for you like if they think it's working then like I need to help them understand like what could be working about it and like what maybe isn't working about it if that makes sense would you be craftier about it than Billy Crystal? Because Robert De Niro at one point says, what is this? You you say back to me what I just said to you? That's what I pay you for? Right. And that made me laugh really hard, yeah. actually. Um, yeah. I think that you have to ask the right questions. I think one of the, like, the art of therapy is learning how to ask really good open-ended questions that lead your client to think more about what they're actually telling you and like pointing out discrepancies um there but 
So yeah, even, I guess, I don't know, like, even if I am frustrated or I'm just, like, feeling overwhelmed by these people's problems, like, they probably know how to ultimately fix those problems better than I do. And you have to, like, trust the client to be able to figure that out with just a little help from you. Listen, mister, you can't come in here. This is a patient's private session. You know me? Yes. No, you don't. Okay. You see my picture in the paper? Yes. No, you didn't. He's got problems. Well, yeah. You are my shrink. You don't hear the word no very often, do you? I hear it all the time, only it's more like, no, please, no, no. You've got to act. So let me, let me hit you with my, my sort of big theory about the best part of this movie, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so I would call this movie, the best parts of it, um, it's a comedy of vocabularies. Like the best writing comes from the fact that you have these two groups whose dialects we know from watching movies, um, psychiatrists and the mafia. And the best parts are when they mistake, make mistakes about each other's jargon or mock it or misuse it. And that kind of writing, this movie is full of that kind of writing, is interesting. And yeah. it's, it's much more innocent than a comedy about kind of like class or life or lifestyle like a my fair lady kind of comedy it's much more innocent uh-huh. than that and it's it's um it's you know what it really reminded me of is a lot of the best lines like it kind of felt like comic strip humor it's it like doesn't have the sort of like Nora Ephron level talent that it needs to really like carry this premise mm. so instead of like so yes, a couple one-liners or like maybe three-liners land, but ultimately with these two sets of language going back and forth, ultimately neither one of them ends up saying anything. Like there's like Billy Crystal's monologue at the end when he's at that gangster meeting, Whoa. he ultimately just like says nothing <laughs> for like minutes. How about this one? Robert De Niro, let's... Fair to say, maybe the most revered actor in the world from 1976 to 1990. He, I bet you could go even earlier than that, but yeah. Um, is so bad at pretending to cry, it's ridiculous. Oh my god, oh my god. this dude won multiple Oscars. <laughs> And he cannot cry. He cannot. Like, I thought he was joking. Like, I thought the character himself was joking crying because he's so bad at crying. Oh, my gosh. It sounds like but he's that is not, that I don't. But that's also not his fault because the script is so flimsy in the, had I only remembered what my father was eating the night he was brutally murdered in front of me, then everything will be fine. It is a flimsy script, and it's a flimsy premise. You can't get two hours out of that premise. And, and but it's such a marketable premise. It's a like marketable. People, people really came out in droves. People put their life on hold for two hours on, to see oh this movie in theaters. And then you get to Billy Crystal pretending to be a mob guy, and you're just so far past the realm of being like, Interesting. I was praying that Chaz Palminteri would shoot him. Because <laughs> yes. you you only have that scene because Billy Crystal demands to do voices. But there's nothing else. Like to, There wasn't anything else to watch other than no. him doing voices in a room filled with people uh, who should have been cast in The Sopranos and then were. <laughs> what I think is so funny with this, like, juxtaposed onto... Uh, 
what will inevitably happen with Gandolfini um, on The Sopranos, like that actual conceit of right. what if like a big time mobster like needed therapy for panic attacks. And it's just so interesting to to look at both. And like this one's ridiculous and stupid. And that one was actually sort of poignant. Yeah. And this movie, one of the weirder things about Analyze This is that it has some moments where it pretends that it's being very serious about this thing, but it just doesn't need to have those. They don't amount to anything. Um, but you right. can see how, if yes, if you were a person whose livelihood depending, depended on punishing and killing other people, that, yes, you could see someone to uh, work through the side effects of that. I tell you, one of the few saving graces of this movie is that incredible late 90s trope of if you want to make a movie feel like there's a huge budget behind it, definitely get a couple of Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett songs to play during key <laughs> montages. I'm glad you brought it up. And the Tony Bennett cameo that was so conspicuous um, <laughs> because 20 minutes in, there's like a photo on Billy Crystal's desk. And De Niro's like, you like Tony Bennett? No, it's an it's a rec- it's a CD. Oh, okay, whatever. Speaking of artifacts from the nineties, <laughs> and then for the next hour and a half, you're like, well, they wouldn't have brought that up if Tony Bennett wasn't going to be in the movie later. <laughs> it, so this is what this is Chekhov's Tony Bennett here is the <laughs> argument you're making. Exactly, hundred percent. You don't show Tony Bennett in the first act if Tony Bennett's not going to play the closing song. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> That's brilliant. All right, let's uh, rate this movie. You go first, pal. Um, like I said, it's cleverer than it needs to be at times, but its moments of cleverness amount to nothing greater because you can pitch the movie in 10 seconds. You have seen the movie in the succeeding 17 years, but it's not unpleasant to sit through. So bad, good. Yeah, I would say if your psychological delusion has you living in like a pre-9-11 existence <laughs> where your biggest concern as a mobster are, those, are the Greeks and the Chinese, then like this is the movie for you. Yeah. Um, it's a pretty inoffensive addition to Robert De Niro's both crime and comedy uh, resume. And crimes of comedy resume. Right. What's up? <laughs> um. This film just certainly does not pass the smell test on the ethical <laughs> level. No, it um, smells like that bathroom in the restaurant where Billy Crystal ditches his wire. Oh, man. Um, yes, the patient and uh, is quote-unquote mentally healthy by the end, but not healthy enough that a sequel isn't in the works. <laughs> and yes, I, don't think, I don't think this movie even attempted to give me a better understanding of my own mental health. <laughs> no, it wasn't about that. I mean, it distracted you for two hours. Did that help you at all? Maybe that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Just, a, just a, a brief respite in the past. Yeah, there you go. So what do you rate it? Uh, bad, okay. good. Nice. Um, well, my goodness, pal, we've made it to the end. So good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you, too. This is what I they like meant by the talking cure. I'm currently laying horizontally with the microphone near my fainting couch. Oh, wow. uh, 
Yeah. So big thank you, uh, Chance. You can tell her personally or she can just listen to the podcast. But big thank you to Sarah for uh, not only watching six hours worth of like pretty mediocre films, but uh, also uh, for putting up with the fact that we do this every couple of weeks. Absolutely. I appreciate it a lot. And yeah, uh, her points were very, were very good. It, w- it was actually very uh, enlightening. The thing she said yeah. about um, the, how like prevalent, like sexual misconduct is yeah. like that. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, in addition to loving her as a person, Sarah like super cares about the profession she's getting into and made for a great guest. So thank you. Right. Thank you, buddy. Let's wrap this up. Yeah, we got it. We have got a Super Bowl to get to. Yeah, we do. And uh, with a with a, a kickoff ambiguously between what six and nine. <laughs> yeah. Um, what what Coldplay song are you most excited to hear at halftime? Um, you think they'll do? You I, think they'll do I, high I speed? I <laughs> green eyes. <laughs> You're the one I wanted I to hope find. They, they launch like a bunch of B-level celebrities or they have like B-level celebrities coming down in parachutes from planes and then he can literally do sky full of stars. Oh my God. You know that the Super Bowl is that on the nose. Good night, that they everybody. Would do... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, if the game doesn't work out though, I'll be building a birdhouse. And uh, you should follow us on Twitter be real guys you can reel like a film reel with two e's you can email us at be real guys at gmail.com listen on stitcher itunes soundcloud uh google play is launching soon we're on that as well along with i'm sure 50 million other podcasts but thank you everyone for listening you cannot kill your personal demons without stabbing your personal good boy so but a, a stiff wind might blow peyton manning right into retirement bye-bye and that's fine with me because i it's like don't care if it's Chinatown or I